Lord God, we thank you so much for your presence with us thus far. Thank you that we've reminded ourselves of what a great and awesome God you are. You're holy, you're loving, you have compassion. And you are, and Jesus is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And Lord, it's on that platform, that understanding, we come to hear your word now. We pray for Matt, we pray for a fresh anointing upon him, a fresh infilling of your Holy Spirit. We pray equally for each one of us that we will be filled afresh with your spirit to receive your word to us, to encourage, to challenge, to make us more like Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ian. Okay, can everybody open up their Bibles, please, to Joshua chapter 10. The book of Joshua chapter 10, and we're starting at verse 28 this morning. Um, we've been going through the book of Joshua systematically, uh, but for the last month or so, we took a break as I did uh, part one and part two of hearing the voice of God. That talk was laid upon my heart and I felt it was important to share that. But now we're returning back to the book of Joshua and we're carrying on from where we left off. And I wouldn't blind you if, it, uh, if you've completely forgotten where we've been, it being such a long period of time. So we'll have a quick um, uh, uh, pick up from where we left off the story so far, as it were. So Joshua and Israel had successfully crossed the Jordan River and they'd entered Canaan halfway up. So if that's the land of Canaan, they'd crossed the Jordan halfway up and they set up their headquarters on the other side of the Jordan in the promised land, a place called Gilgal. And from Gilgal, they started to launch their offensive into the land of Canaan. Uh, they first marched against and defeated Jericho. Uh, and Jericho really was the doorway to the rest of the land. And after Jericho, they defeated Ai. And uh, what they found was that, they, that because they came in halfway through the country, they, um, they attacked Jericho, then they attacked Ai. They pretty much cut the country in half. So now there was a north south divide with Israel in the middle. Now the Israelites were tricked by the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites or the people of Gibeon were Hivites and uh, the Gibeonites turned up and they pretended to be envoys from a far off land and they sought to make a treaty with Israel uh, and Joshua failed to seek the Lord on the matter and he cut a, cut and cut a covenant with the Gibeonites only to find that they actually lived about 20 miles down the road. Um, Israel wasn't supposed to make an alliance with people in the land, but this was where he fell over. And Joshua learned an important lesson that when it comes to making decisions in life, we should always seek God for his guidance on the matter. Not long after that, there was an alliance of five Amorite kings that rose up to attack Gibeon. And in the terms of the covenant that Joshua had cut with Gibeon, they... <coughs> The Israelites were duty bound to come to the defence and the rescue of the Gibeonites. And so Israel uh, came to the aid of Gibeon. But not only did Israel come to the aid of Gibeon, God came to the aid of Gibeon as well. And the Lord rained boulders down from heaven on the Amorites. And uh, the five Amorite kings took refuge in a cave near Machadar. And Joshua rolled a stone across the mouth of the cave, pursued the rest of the army, made sure that they were all caught and killed, then came back to that cave at Machadar and executed the five kings. 
And so that's where we got to in the book of Joshua. Now, moving forward, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning discusses the conquest of the land of Canaan. It discusses the southern campaign where Israel go next to conquer all the territory in the south. And then Israel moved north to conquer all the territory in the north. And then in chapter 12, we have a list of all the kings that uh, Joshua and Israel de uh, defeated. So let's, go, let's launch off uh, in verse 28. On that day, Joshua took Machedar and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them, all the people who were in it. He let none remain. And he also did to the king of Machedar as he had done to the king of Jericho. So here we see that uh, the conquest of the south begins with the defeat of Machedar. And he does to the king of Machedar as he did to the king of Jericho. Now, what did God Joshua do to the king of Jericho? Well, in Joshua 6 verse 21, we read, And they utterly destroyed all that was in that city. Israel destroyed everybody in Jericho and their king. And that's exactly what they did in Machedar as well. And so we see that they look back to Jericho as the archetype for every battle that followed. And by looking at Jericho, what they, what they saw was that Jericho was not defeated by human strength or by military superiority. Jericho was defeated by following the word of God. If you remember, Joshua waited for the word of God. And when he heard the word of God, he operated in faith and obedience to that word of God, which resulted in them marching around Jericho seven days. And then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times, blew a trumpet and the walls came crashing down. It was more of a spiritual victory than an actual physical victory. And it was about learning to trust in God, learning to wait for a word from God and learning to obey that word of God. That was the key to victory in Jericho. And that would be the key to victory in the rest of the land, in both the southern campaign and northern campaign. And we'll see that Jericho is the model which they followed in the following verses. So let's go on into verse 29 and read on. Then Joshua passed from Machedar and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord also delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel. He struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. So again, they're looking back to Jericho. Jericho is the pattern for which they follow for every successive battle. And it is the pattern of Jericho that is the basis for every successive victory. They continually wait for a word from God. They continually follow that word. They obey and trust God's word for victory. Then we go on. Then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish. And they encamped against it and fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day and struck it and all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. So the pattern that they followed in Lachish was the same pattern that they followed in Libna. And of course, the pattern in Libna was based upon the pattern that uh, had been laid down by Jericho. So they're following the same method time and time again. Every time they're waiting for a word from the Lord. And then once God has given them the word, 
the battle strategy, they walk in a faith and obedience to that word. Then Horam, king of Giza, this is verse 33, came up to him to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left him, uh, left him none remaining. <clears throat> From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with him. And they encamped against it and fought against it. They took it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And all the people who were in it utterly destroyed that day, according to all that he had done in Lachish. So when it came to Eglon, they followed the pattern of Lachish, which followed the pattern of Libna, which followed the pattern of Jericho. They're doing the same thing time and time again, waiting for a word from the Lord. And then when they've got that word, walking in faith and obedience to that word. Um, then Joshua, yeah, Eglon. And then they took it, verse 38. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir and they fought against it. And they took it and its king and all its cities. They struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron. And so he did to Debir and its king as he had done to also to Libna and its king. So we see that time and time again, that they're following this pattern laid down by Jericho about waiting upon the Lord and walking in faith and obedience. And when it comes to the battles in our life, it is the same model that we follow. We must wait upon the Lord for his wisdom and his guidance, how to deal with the battles in, his in, in our lives. And when he has given us wisdom, when he has given us direction, we walk in faith and obedience to what he has said to us. Now, I think it would be wrong to assume that absolutely everybody was wiped out because this seems very much like a lightning sweep through the whole of the southern part of the land of Canaan. Uh, in William MacDonald's commentary upon this passage, he quotes a guy called Haley and he says, Joshua swept over this region in too rapid a manner to depopulate it entirely. All whom he pursued, he destroyed but he did not stop to search in every possible hiding place. This was left to be done by each tribe in its own inheritance. So what Joshua was doing was he was taking control of the land, destroying and pulling down the key strongholds, the key places of opposition, getting rid of the kings and the powerhouses. There would still be uh, other people remaining that uh, when the various tribes were allotted the land would have to deal with themselves but they were taking the southern part of Canaan so that uh, all power bases were destroyed. And the summary of Joshua's campaign is summed up in the last few verses, verses 40 onwards. So Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country and the south, and the lowland and the wilderness slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. And all these kings in their land Joshua took at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. So we see that they started off in the mountain region. Then they went down to the lowlands slowly getting rid of these strongholds, getting rid of these kings, getting rid of the power bases and subduing the land and bringing it under the control of God. And we read there in verse 40 that uh, um, 
they operate that they utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. So they were obeying the command of God. They were following the direction of God in all that they were doing. And we read also in verse 42, the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So it wasn't just their military strength. God was on their side and it was God that brought them the victory. No, no victory would have been won without God on their side. And if we want victory in our lives, we need to make sure that God is on our side, that we're operating according to his commands and direction. And doubtless some escaped, some people fled. Doubtless some, some of the people within the land turned to the God of Israel. And doubtless some remained to be dealt with later. But my question is, when we read through this series of battles and defeats, what can we learn from this passage? What can we take from it? Well, we know that Israel had a salvation experience. They had applied the blood of the lamb to their houses in Egypt. They had been delivered from slavery of Egypt. They had been baptised by passing through the Red Sea. And now they were pressing into the fullness of their promised inheritance. They were taking ground occupied by the enemy and bring it into subjection to God for his glory and for his service. And this mirrors our Christian walk as well. We have applied the blood of Jesus to our lives. We have been delivered from slavery to sin. We have been baptised into the body of Christ. And now God wants us to press into the fullness of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. There are battles for us to fight as Christians Things that need to be overcome so that we can come into the fullness of all that God has for us. There are parts of our lives which are occupied by the flesh and by the world and by the enemy. And they need to be brought into subjection to Jesus Christ. Every battle Israel fought, every king that Israel defeated was a step further into the fullness of what God had for them. And every battle that we fight in our Christian walk. Every enemy that we defeat is a step forward in the fullness of what God has for us. When I look at my own Christian life, there was a time when I had to make a choice whether to carry on in the ways of the world or whether to leave that behind and start living the life that God wanted me to live. That was a battle. That was a Canaanite king that needed to be defeated in my own life. There came a time when in my early Christian walk, I was very much dependent upon my friends and the youth group that I belonged to. But there came a time where God was calling me to come out from these group of friends and stand and rely upon him alone. That was another Canaanite king that I had to do battle with. Dependence upon others or dependence upon God. Again, in my Christian walk, there was a time when I became aware that not all that says is Christian is biblical. That there's lots of false teaching within the church. Lots of things which are not godly. And I had to make a choice. Am I just going to go along with the status quo and compromise? Or am I going to make a stand for the truth of what stands in the Bible? And there was another Canaanite king that needed to be slain in my life then. There, was, there, there comes a time when you recognise that God is speaking to you. That he's guiding you in a certain direction. And the question is, are you going to obey that voice? Go in the direction that he's leading you. No matter what the price, or are you going to stay where it's comfortable and easy? And that, and that is an ongoing battle. There is an ongoing series of Canaanite kings. Whether it be something big like direction in life, moving house or, or starting something new. 
or whether it be God is calling you to come and spend time with him this evening instead of watching television. There is a Canaanite king to be killed then. And every king that you defeat, every part of the flesh that you crucify for Christ, every time you make a decision for him, you are moving forward into the fullness of God. And just as we saw that each victory that Israel had in the land was predicated on the previous victory, so that that is the same for us. Every victory in our life is predicated on the previous victory. If we have won a victory and slain that that part of our life that needs to be slain for Christ, then God is able to move us forward. But then there is another battle for us to fight. If we win that, we move forward. But if we don't win that that past battle, God will bring us round again to that battle until we've managed to gain a victory to move forward. It is important that we go the way of God, that we fight the fights that he has placed before us and remain faithful to him if we're to move forward into the richness and the fullness of what he has for us. Let's move forward into chapter 11. And then as we move forward into chapter 11, we see the armies of Israel go from the south up to the north and take the northern kingdom. But this is different. Instead of Israel leading the way, all the forces of the north seem to unite in a confederacy and they come to attack Israel. Let's read verses 1 to 5. And it came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Achshaph, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plain south of Chinneroth, in the lowland and in the heights of Dor on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains, the Uptite, the Outer Site, the Hivite below, Hermon in the land and Mizpah. And so they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. So news of Joshua and Israel's mounting tribes in the south and their sweeping attack through the land there reached these northern territories. And so they decided to form a confederacy under the leadership of Jabin, king of Hazor. Now, of course, this is not the first confederacy we have seen. There was an alliance between Bethel and Ai. And of course, there was this alliance between the five southern Amorite kings in Joshua 10. But this was a confederacy, an alliance on a whole new scale. It was the entire north that they decided to come together in one awesome army to attack Israel. And these armies met at the waters of Merom. Uh, the waters of Merom are an expanse of water north of the Galilee in the south there. And it was the news of Israel's victory in the south that prompted Jabin to counterattack with this large opposition. And whenever we move forward in our walk with God, whenever we operate in faith and obedience to what God has spoken to in our lives, Whenever we start to do battle with the flesh, the world and devil that is seeking to take ground in our lives, expect a counterattack from the enemy. He will always try to bring discouragement. He will always try to undermine the work that God is trying to do in our lives. And it comes so often from an unexpected quarter. It might be a workmate. 
It might be a neighbour. It might be a family. It might be a friend. It might even be somebody from church who is unwittingly being used by the enemy to speak discouragement into your life. But remember, it's not that individual. It's the enemy. The enemy trying to stop you from moving forward into the fullness of what God has for you. So Israel faced two key threats from this alliance from the north. We see there in verse four. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude. This was a massive army, the size of an army that no one had ever seen. No doubt they clearly outnumbered Israel. So this was something that Israel had never faced before. And the second threat that was posed by this alliance, we read also in verse four, it says, with very many horses and chariots. This is an army with technological superiority when it came to military warfare. These chariots and these horses are the equivalent of our tanks today. They would be able to carry a vast number of of archers speedily into the battle. They'd be able to shoot their arrows and they'd be able to retreat quickly so they could make lightning attacks. These chariots and horses gave the military edge to this alliance of from the north. It was incredible. And even though Israel were pressing forward and though they faced many challenges, nothing could have prepared them for what lay ahead with this new alliance. But, and well, as we move forward in, in our walk with God, we're going to face what appears to be insurmountable odds And we think, well, crikey, nothing could have prepared me for what lies ahead. But what you will find is that God has prepared you. The victories that you've already won, the lessons that you've already learned, are fully equip you for the battles that lie ahead. You you might not feel it yourself. You might see this overwhelming force and you think, crikey, how am I going to be able to deal with this? But you can deal with whatever is thrown at you through Jesus Christ. He has equipped you and he has prepared you for what lies ahead and indeed this must have been a fearful and intimidating sight this massive army and of course I think our natural knee-jerk reaction would be one of fear I don't know whether you've recognized this but whenever we're faced with uh, opposition the flesh is always swift to give us the wrong response to that situation to flee to give up to try to use our own strength to get out of it don't respond to the flesh Don't respond to the battles and the conflicts that you face in your own strength. We are called to walk in the spirit, not the flesh. We need to seek God's perspective upon the situation. We need to operate in the revelation he has given, not the revelation before our eyes. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. And remember the model that was set before all the way back with Jericho. They wait for a word from the Lord then they operate in faith and obedience to that word. And what does God say? Well, let's read on in verse six. But the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You will hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So the first word that God gives to Joshua and Israel is do not be afraid. We all know that fear came in from the fall. 
The moment Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they realised they were naked and, and they were scared. They tried to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. And then when they heard God coming, they, they hid from God. And then we read in Genesis 3.10, Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. Fear came in with the fall. Fear is the result of sin. And God doesn't want us to operate according to fear. God wants us to operate according to faith in him. And so he says, do not fear. He deals with the flesh, flesh-like reaction in Joshua and Israel. Then the second word that God gives is a word of faith. He says, I will deliver all of them into your hands. See, the Lord not only gives guidance to Joshua, the Lord gives assurance of victory to Joshua. Tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. And when we move forward in a battle, we need to have that word from God. We need to have that assurance. The word of God will always provide direction, encouragement and inspire confidence. And the third word he gives is more specific. He says, hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. God's general guidance develops into a more specific guidance. As you fight and as you defeat these uh, enemies, as I give them into your hands, I want you to hamstring the horses and burn their chariots. And as I said before, horses were a largely military animal. They used to pull chariots into battle, bring soldiers into battle and these archers as well. And they would always give the army an upper hand. But if the horses were hamstrung, they could not be used in battle. They could be used for other purposes, but they couldn't be used as a military animal any longer. So along with the burning of chariots, the hamstringing of the horses rendered the military vehicles of the Canaanites useless. But of course, they would only be able to do that once victory had been won. So what God was saying here was, um, I don't want you to use the weapons of warfare that the Canaanites use and employ. Our, our weapons are not of flesh. They're not physical. Our weapons are spiritual. We don't rely upon human means to fight. We rely upon God and his spiritual means to battle. God did not want the Israelites relying upon military strength. God did not want the Israelites relying upon chariots and horses. God wanted the Israelites relying upon him. And that's what God wants for us, to be relying upon him, to trust in him for the victory, to using spiritual weapons for warfare, not physical weapons. And this is true for us as Christians. We are not to rely upon human strength. We're not to rely upon human wisdom and tactics, whether it be in battles, whether it be in running the church. We are to rely upon the Lord God Almighty and trust in him for his guidance. And it's interesting, you know, even though they would defeat the Northern Alliance, there would still be many battles, and many wars that lies ahead. And those chariots and those horses would have been mighty useful for further battles. What Israel were going to be doing by hamstringing these horses and burning these chariots is keeping themselves militarily weak. Israel were not taking advantage of an opportunity to become militarily strong. And that's exactly the way that God wants his people. He wants them in a place of weakness. He doesn't want them in a place of strength. God does not use the strong. God uses the weak. And if we think we are strong, God will break us. God will make us weak 
so that we no longer rely upon our own wisdom and our own ability, but we rely upon him. So that we learn that we can only win victory through him. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. God has chosen the weak things of the world. God wants us in a place of weakness. Then he can, then he can use us. If we think we're wise and we're mighty, then God will humble us. God will need us to get us to the place where we need to die to self so that we can be made alive to Christ. God is looking for the weak things of this world. Let's just read on verse 7. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Miram and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel who defeated them and chased them to a greater Sidon to the brook of Misrephoth and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. And so Joshua did to them as the Lord had told them. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with a sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all these kingdoms. And they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. And then he burned Hazor with fire. And so all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood on their mounds, Israel burned none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So as the Lord had promised, so it came to pass. The Lord won a tremendous victory over this impressive military force against all odds through a weak army who was submitted and yielded to him. And while the armies of Israel routed all the cities that belonged to these armies, only the city of Hazor was utterly burnt to the ground. And that's because Hazor was the leading city and it needed to be made an example of. All the while it stood, it could prove a rallying call for another uprising. So because Hazor led and brought together this alliance, they completely destroyed Hazor as, as an example to everybody that Israel was in control. So Joshua and Israel operated in complete obedience and this resulted in complete victory. We must operate in complete obedience if we want to have a complete victory. If we face defeat in uh, areas of our lives, perhaps it's because we're not wholeheartedly serving the Lord. It's good to remember that 80% obedience is still disobedience. 80% obedience is still disobedience. The Lord is looking for wholehearted service. And so as we come to the end of chapter 11, we see a summary of the conquest. So Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, 
even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. All the others they took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. And at that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains from the Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, in Gath and in Ashdod. And so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses. And Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from peace. Just a few verses from that passage I'd like to highlight. The first is verse 18, where it says Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. We like quick and easy victories. And it's easy to read this book and think, well, crikey, we've covered the southern and the northern campaign. We're at the place where, wow, you know, in a very short period of time, an entire land was conquered by the Israelites. But Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. It didn't come easy and it didn't come quickly. And we all have Canaanite kings in our lives that come against us. Battles that we need to fight. It might be an enemy of lust. It may be the enemy of fear. It might be the enemy of anger. It may be the enemy of power and position. It might be the enemy of self-assurance. But in all these things, victory does not come quickly or easily. We need to commit to fighting. We need to commit to following the word of God. And we need to commit to pressing in. Knowing that God has guaranteed victory, but it takes time and it takes effort. But the Lord is on our side. The second verse I, I want to highlight is verse 19, where it says, There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon, all the others they took in battle. Israel did not make peace with the inhabitants of the land. They recognised the enemy and they did not compromise with the enemy. And that should be true of us as well. We do not make peace with our enemies. We do not make peace with the flesh. We do not make peace with the world. When the world or the flesh rises up its ugly head, encouraging us to compromise, wanting to make an alliance with us, we do not make peace. We need to recognise our enemy. And whether it be at work, in the workplace, where to be part of the in-crowd, you need to join in their language and their humour, we don't compromise. We don't join in with the world. Or whether it be at home, where our flesh wants to watch that television programme, but we know it has questionable morality, sex, bad language in. But it's the in thing to watch. Everybody else is watching it. Don't make an alliance with the world. Don't make an alliance with the flesh. Don't make peace with your enemy. Stand in the place where you're going to get a victory with Jesus. In verse 20, it says, For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them, and that they might receive no mercy. 
In Deuteronomy 7 verses 1 to 6, Moses recorded God's command to utterly destroy the nations in the land of Canaan. If the people remained, they would turn the hearts of Israel away from God. Our God is a jealous God and he will not share his people with another. He will not share his wife Israel with another idol or another deity. And the same is true of his bride, the church. He is a jealous God and he will not share his bride with the idols of this world. His bride needs to make herself ready for the marriage of the Lamb. Our bridegroom is coming to soon fetch his bride. Let him find us with garments unspotted with sin. Lives surrendered to his will with the oil of the Holy Spirit in our lamps. Let ourselves uh, show no mercy to the enemies of God that would otherwise spot our garments and make us unready to receive our Lord when he comes. You know, there is the accusation that the book of Joshua is a book of genocide, but it's not a book of genocide. It's a book of judgment. The Canaanites were warned about the coming judgment. They knew about the Red Sea crossing. They knew about the death of Pharaoh and his army. They knew about the wilderness wanderings. They knew about the defeat of Og and Sion. They knew about the Jordan crossing. They knew about... Um, they knew about the defeat of Jericho and Ai. They saw the advancing army bringing judgment. Yet they did not repent. They hardened their hearts against the Lord. And the Lord made them ripe for judgment. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in right unrighteousness. This was the Canaanites. They, they made war against God. They lived in sin. And even though that they, had, they, they knew that judgment was coming, they chose to harden their hearts against God. God had, God had said way back in Genesis chapter 15 that judgment was coming to Canaan. They'd had over 400 years to repent, but they had not done so. And so we read in Romans 2 verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. For over 400 years, they'd been hardening their hearts. For over 400 years, they'd been treasuring up wrath. And this was their day of wrath their day of judgment the canaanites were a wicked and an evil race they suppressed the truth they were unrepentant they hardened their hearts they stored up wrath and judgment and the day the israelites arrived was the day wrath and judgment from god arrived and as had been foretold they were utterly destroyed let us not not forget ezekiel 18 verses verse 23 ezekiel 18 verse 23 says do i have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live. The Lord did not take any delight in the death of the Canaanites. He'd rather they turn from their sin and idolatry to the true and living God, but they acted in defiance. Remember Rahab, who repented and turned to the Lord and her whole family. The Lord rejoiced when Rahab gave shelter to the two Israeli spies. Remember the Gibeonites, the Lord rejoiced when Gibeon turned to the God of Israel. And Rahab, we know, came into the Messianic line. And uh, the Gibeonites, they became the temple servants. They served in the temple of God. 
Uh, Abby and I, along with the children, have just uh, are halfway through reading Ezra and Nehemiah at the moment. And it's amazing how many times it talks about the temple servants, the temple servants, or in some chest, uh, translations, the Nethanim, the Nethanim. The Nethanim, or the temple servants, they were the Gibeonites. And they came back from the captivity in Babylon, and they were instrumental in building the temple and building the walls and rebuilding the city of uh, Jerusalem. They were faithful right through. The rest of the Canaanites could have followed a similar path if only they had turned to God. And I'm sure it grieved God's heart to bring that judgment as it will grieve him to bring judgment upon all mankind. But our God is a just God. And if we do not turn to him, then judgment will fall. It's never too late to turn to Jesus. Never too late. In 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 it says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. It's never too late to turn to Jesus for salvation. And so we see that uh, they not only did they repel the Canaanites, but they were able to repel the Anakim as well in verses 21 and 22. Uh, they pushed them back to the land of Gaza and to the land, land of Gath. And these Anakim, of course, were the giants, the same giants that the 12 spies had spied out when they came into the land under Moses. And they brought that report back to Moses and all Israel. Uh, and they're saying, you know, the land is flowing with milk and honey, but there are giants in the land. The descendants of Anak are there and fear overcame them and they stopped them coming into the promised land. But here we see another generation, a generation that operates by faith, a generation that operates in obedience to the word of God. And this generation were able to defeat those giants. And if we operate in faith and obedience to God's word, we can overcome the giants in our lives. Until we find in verse 23, right at the end, then the land rested from war. The major battles had been fought and won. Israel were established in the land. There was a great deal of mopping up to be done for sure. But there comes a time when you are established in your walk. You have fought the major battles. You stand firm in your faith. You know your calling and you are operating in that calling. That wavering that marked the early part of your walk is long gone and the doubts and uncertainties have been removed. However, there is still mopping up to be done. There are still areas in your life that, need to, that you need to die to. Areas of your life that you need to grow into. Areas in your life where a more firm and decisive victory needs to be won. The enemy is still there on your borders and he will try to advance and take ground in your life. He will sue for peace and encourage compromise. But the true soldier of Christ remains alert. The battle is not over until we go to be with the Lord or the Lord comes to take us home. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. It says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. And 1 Peter 1, 13, our closing verse says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, it's an exhausting study going through all these battles, going all through all these uh, conflicts. And Lord, we know that sometimes in our Christian walk, it can be exhausting going through the battles and the conflicts. 
We know, Lord, that there are times when we're facing adversity and affliction. But we know, Lord, that you have given us the spiritual weapons we need to be able to win a victory. We know, Lord, that there is a word to give us guidance. And Lord, if we operate in faith and obedience to that word, we know, Lord, that we'll have success. Help us to have the courage, the faith, the strength to press forward into the fullness of what we have in Christ. Knowing that, Lord, it will not always be conflict. Knowing, Lord, that it will not always be like this. But that just as Israel rested, there's going to be a time of rest and peace for us. Amen.